the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest this hour, I'm going to have to uh, place a phone call here real quick. I just uh, just noticed in my notes that I'm supposed to be calling Paul Mango, and uh, let's see if we can get hold of him right now. Yeah, Paul Mango is a, a uh, former uh, deputy chief of staff of uh, Health and Human Services. We uh, compare presidents on COVID response. Hello? Yeah, hi, Paul Mango here. How you doing? Yeah, hi, Paul. Stand by for just a moment. And welcome to live radio, folks. I didn't realize that I was supposed to be calling Paul. Hi, Paul. This is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, I hope you're ready for our chat this morning. And welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Tom. I'm looking forward to it. Good morning. Yeah, I, uh, I tell people all the time, welcome to live radio, because I don't always uh, check my notes well enough and realized that I was supposed to call you and I was sort of waiting for your call and realized oops wait a minute I'm supposed to be placing the call but but we're connected and and we've talked before about uh, Operation Warp Speed which you were a principal uh, part of uh, working in your capacity as uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for uh, Health and Human Services and I was going to open this segment by acknowledging that just last week, President Biden uh, made a speech commemorating a year in office and uh, um, trying to, you know, sort of lay out his accomplishments and vision for the future, much like a state of the state address, which they've put off till the first of March. But... Um, when you were on the show before, Paul, you had said some things about Donald Trump and your experiences working with him in the Oval Office that are very different from the impression that we got of Donald Trump when he was in the spotlight and at the microphone. Um, but since we now have the hindsight of two years that can be compared, one under Donald Trump as president, one under Joe Biden as president. 
with uh, regard to how the the government and these two presidents have dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what are what are your basic observations between the two? Because I'm of the impression, Paul, that it isn't always the presidents that are doing the work. It's guys like you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, well. First of all, let me let me pick up on that, Tom. I have the greatest empathy for the folks who are managing the COVID response today. It is uh, a very demanding task. It's a twenty four seven job, and it's a wily virus. It's a difficult virus uh, to control. That said, um, you know the facts are pretty stubborn on this, in that um, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in the first year under President Biden significantly exceed those uh, that we experienced under President Trump's year of leadership of, uh, of the COVID response. And, uh, you know, the current administration had the benefit of vaccines and some therapeutics and a lot greater knowledge of uh, a lot greater knowledge of what this virus was. So I, I don't want to fault them for a virus that's difficult to control, but I think we can fault them for what I characterized in a recent op-ed as very poor and somewhat uh, arrogant uh, behavior in the preparation phase, and then a very myopic approach to trying to deal uh, with this virus. And Tom, let me just go into each uh, just for a moment, if I may. Um, yeah, please. You know, we had a when two administrations change at, in Washington. There's a thing called a landing team, and the new administration sends persons in, and we host them. We house them, in this case, uh, in the headquarters of the Department of Health and Human Services, so that there's a smooth transition and that we give them the benefit of all the knowledge we have except one. We can't talk about anything that has to do with publicly traded companies until they sign their ethics agreements, because that would be against the law. But we can brief them on virtually everything else. Well, these guys didn't show up. Um, you know, they did a bunch of video conferences with us, but they, they were, I guess, concerned about contracting COVID. Now, we had been in there every day for seven months, every weekend. You know, we didn't let that bother us, but they didn't show up, and they didn't even interview Secretary Alex Azar on his way out. Um, now, no one at the time knew more about our COVID response than, you know, him. And think of him as the field commander in a, in a military battle, you know, Alex Azar, and a new commander's coming in. Can you imagine not interviewing your predecessor to see, you know, what is the current status, what worked, what didn't work. We were, we were happy to tell them all the things we didn't do well so that they wouldn't repeat the mistakes, but they'd never asked. So that's, you know, just a poor... Let me, I, I want to ask you, I want to ask you something about that, Paul, because you were on the inside looking out. For all of us on the outside looking in, there, there were reports that... Um, and, and this was widely promoted by the Biden team and, and really by mainstream media that a lot of those meetings didn't take place. One, as you pointed out, um, out of uh, fear of exposure to the to COVID-19, but because the Trump administration was not welcoming was not allowing a transition to take place. And that's what it looked like from the outside. But you were on the inside, and and you're saying that basically the people in your little piece of the universe were welcoming, welcoming them in, and they didn't show up. Well... Absolutely, and I don't. I can't speak for what happened in other parts of the government, but I can speak directly 
what happened within Health and Human Services. And it was a day or two before Thanksgiving of 2020 uh, when uh, finally the, um, the government said, let's begin the transition. And um, we were on a video conference with the incoming COVID response team and said, guys, we want to make this the smoothest transition ever. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We owe this to the, to the American people. Let us know whatever you want. And again, we had one exception. We couldn't talk to them about anything that might have been a, what we call market-moving information. So if we were about to award Pfizer a contract, we couldn't tell them about that because it was against our ethics rules, as you can imagine, with trading stocks and everything else. But we, we, we set up hundreds of cubicles and conference rooms on the second floor of this seven-story building that we had, uh, and they were empty. They never showed up. Uh, so I don't – you know, we accommodated all of their video conferences. But, you know, Tom, I was, I was a young officer in the military a long time ago, and I learned – very early, there's no substitute for a ground reconnaissance. You know, you cannot really understand what's happening unless you show up. And uh, so we were uh, we were surprised by that, and um, you know, disappointed. And in retrospect, maybe they wish they they had shown up. And of course, the other thing is, it would have been about well, roughly a month after that when um, uh, vaccines started becoming widely available. And correct. The that first was one's, first one shipped on first one shipped on December thirteenth. That's correct. And so it, I, I, I guess what I'm what I'm curious about is, would the Trump administration have handled the encouragement of the public to participate in vaccines? more than the Biden administration did? Well, obviously, the Biden administration has been pushing vaccines. And in fact, one of the things I talk about in this op-ed that I put out last week in the in the Washington Times is it, it's really a unidimensional strategy. It's for the Biden folks, it's vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. And these are extremely high-performing, effective vaccines. So I'm not diminishing that. But we were also working on treatments and therapies, uh, as well as diagnostics. And the Biden folks kind of truncated those two and said vaccines only. And I believe that was a mistake. I mean, we used to go and brief President Trump every three to four weeks in the Oval Office. First question he would ask is how we're doing on therapeutics, not even ask about vaccines. And he'd say very logic, you know, compelling logic. He would say, listen, these vaccines at best are 95 percent effective. That means 15 to 17 million Americans are not going to respond to them. What, what happens if those persons wind up in the hospital? Do we have something to, to treat them? So even, you know, he pushed us very hard, and we were advancing a number of therapeutics in conjunction with the vaccines, you know, the fastest ones to market in history by 80%. But the Biden folks dropped it. So, um, you know, I think, they, I think the Biden folks have been over-indexing on vaccines, not, you know, not, not diminishing them. But I, I have to remind our listeners, I think, Tom, that it was, you know, President Biden when he was a candidate and Vice President Harris when she was a candidate, both badmouthed the Trump vaccines. Um, that doesn't help them when they get into office. You know, they both said you can't trust a Trump vaccine. Um, that, that hasn't helped them. So anyway, uh, that, that's where we are. I wish they'd spent a little bit more time pushing therapeutics and diagnostics, we wouldn't be in the position we're in today. 
What about the number of people that just seem unwilling to take vaccines? Yeah, well, you know, I've said, Tom, that this should always be a decision between one's physician and oneself. Um, there are a lot of legitimate reasons why someone would not want to get vaccinated prior allergic infections to vaccines, um, other, you know, medical exemptions. I, I think it should be a conversation between one's physician and, and one's uh, and oneself. Um, so, you know, we would never have pushed mandates. We certainly would have advanced and tried to encourage Americans, um, anyone who could benefit from these vaccines, to get them. But uh, we were not in a position to mandate anything, and, and we wouldn't have done that. And I think that's hardened people's uh, feelings about the vaccine. And what I do disagree with, Tom, you know, I, I read and watch a lot about what's going on. Um, everyone said, oh, it's the Republicans who don't want to get vaccinated. Well, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., not exactly your classic Republican, you know, has been out there the last couple of weeks rallying people, anti-vaxxers in D.C. last week. And he wrote a book about this, right? So this is a bipartisan issue. I think we should continue to encourage Americans to get vaccinated, encourage them to talk to their physicians. But I do not think it's appropriate to mandate vaccines. You know, I, I just read uh, something about that, um, about Robert Kennedy Jr.'s remarks. And um Aside from the, the fact that I think he went a little far out there on the limb with the, the references to Hitler and Nazi Germany, um, it, it, he has been um, a supporter of what many, many would call maybe, I don't know if you'd want to call it a movement or not, but certainly in support of people who um, are against vaccine mandates, at least. Um, yeah. but what about this, this idea? And I want to get back to, I want to get back to therapeutics, but we have a break coming up in about a minute. So I just, I, I just want to take this minute and, and ask again about this issue of vaccines. If, as was suggested during the Trump administration and reinforced under the Biden administration, reaching, uh, the numbers went back and forth from 70 to 80 percent, but the but the basic idea was that if 80 percent of the American population got vaccinated, that would rid the threat of COVID-19 being a pandemic. Um, was that was that true? I mean, should people have taken that seriously? Well, I think Tom, there is one real. Um, I think shortcoming of that hypothesis, and that is that there's this thing called natural immunity. Okay, so I, you know, Dr. Fauci and others have claimed, and they're trained virologists and epidemiologists, that if 80% of the population is protected from the virus, that it's very difficult for it to replicate and spread. But they never considered those who had natural immunity until this past Thursday when the CDC finally came out two years into this and said, guess what? Natural immunity, meaning if you've had COVID and you've recovered from it, is very powerful protection. Paul, um, I've, got so to, think, I've got to interrupt yeah. you there. Um, yeah. Can you stick around? Everybody yeah, do. Absolutely. All right. Brand we'll be back with Paul Mango now. right after this. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you are listening to the Tom Sumner Program. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints 
from your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with former uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for Homeland or, uh, Health and Human Services, um, Paul Mango. And, uh, Paul, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Hey, that's no problem, Tom. Got to oh. recognize the advertisers. That's right. Um, and, and, Paul, I, I almost put you in charge of national security there for a minute. Um, <laughs> but... Um, when we went to break, I, I had to cut you off, and I apologize for that. Um, we were talking about the idea of uh, immunity and herd immunity and this notion that was being promoted by Fauci and others that if we got to 70% or 80% of full uh, vaccination nationwide, that that would at least end the worst of the threat from, from COVID-19. And we, we still haven't quite hit those numbers. Yeah, I think, though, Tom, uh, when you count natural immunity, I think we're there. And what we're seeing is very interesting now with Omicron, um, and that is an extraordinary number of cases. But uh, in terms of case fatality rate, it's dropped significantly. And I, I personally believe both natural immunity and vaccinated immunity have had a lot to do with that. So just to and put what it about the severity yeah. of the variant itself? How much does that have to do with it? Because we're, we're being told that the vaccines work on variants pretty well. But I've also read things that say Omicron is not quite as severe as say Delta was or the initial strains of COVID-19. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm hearing, too. And I think it's important for the listeners to understand when the vaccines were going through the original clinical trials, um, there's a, a, a characteristic called an endpoint. What is the endpoint to the clinical trial? And it was never to prevent infection. None of these vaccines was developed to prevent infection. They were all developed to prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death. So it's not at all concerning to me that Omicron is spreading among or any variant is spreading among those who are vaccinated, it would be much more concerning if those who were vaccinated wound up in the hospital or dying. And on that dimension, uh, the vaccines and natural immunity seem to be working extraordinarily well. The latest numbers would suggest that COVID on a per case basis is not killing any more than the flu annual flu does. We're down to about 0.2% of those who contract the virus. Uh, wind then, up then, dying, and that's that's down in flu territory. Then why, Paul, are we um, at, at least in Michigan and, and maybe some other states as well, hearing about um, hospitals being overrun with cases? Yeah, well, Tom. First of all, that happens very often during flu season. We just don't hear about it as much in the media, but it's often during uh, kind of January through March in prior years, long before COVID hospitals uh, had an overwhelming number of patients. But in this case, Omicron is so highly transmissible that even a relatively small percentage of folks who wind up in the hospital is a large absolute number. That's, that's what we're dealing with now. And 
it's unfortunate, and I know I've been reading all the stories about the poor nurses and frontline care providers who are just absolutely exhausted trying to deal with this. And hopefully this is the very last uh, surge that we'll see. Um, and, you know, some of the new therapeutics coming out, the Paxlovid, uh, the Malupiravir, uh, these are tremendously effective uh, therapeutics that will prevent even more persons from going to the hospital. And, and what's the status on the availability of those? Yeah, you know, we're, I, I'm hearing that they're trickling out. And this is, again, if I had to criticize the Biden folks, um, these therapeutics went through phase one and phase two clinical trials. What we did on Operation Warp Speed, and I talk about this in my book, is once we saw the early results of the trials, we made investments right away in manufacturing the product even though we didn't know it would ultimately get approval from the Food and Drug Administration. Obviously, the Biden administration failed to do that, but, you know, Paxlovid, this new pill from Pfizer, it, it went through phase one and phase two clinical trials. They probably finished in the fall, yet they still didn't have any product available when, when they finished their phase three clinical trials and got approval a couple of weeks ago, authorization, emergency use authorization. So they don't seem to be adhering to our principle of, of investing simultaneously in manufacturing while you are still proving that the drug is going to be effective. And that's why we got vaccines out faster than any time in history. We made that bet and we won that bet uh, with three of the vaccines, as you know, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson and Johnson. In your op-ed last week for the, um, uh, for the Washington times, um, you were comparing the, the, two presidents for their handling um, for each each for a year in office with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic go, uh, going on. Um, what is, the, is there a metric that you used or could use to compare the two? Um, you saw it from the inside. I keep bringing up things that we saw from the outside with regard to you know, how the, the media treated uh, these two presidents um, and, and, how, um, and, and how the presidents themselves appear on camera. Uh, you, you said the last time you were on the show, Paul, and I was, I was really moved by some of your comments about how things were for you in the Oval Office with President Trump because it appeared to me as though... President Trump was was quite often in the national media trashing the very people that were doing the hard work with comments like Biden? no no oh, I mean ahead. President Trump um, yeah with comments like you know draining the swamp and you know his his comments about uh, Dr. Fauci not getting things right and, and some of those things. It seemed it, it seemed like he wasn't building a lot of confidence in the people like you that were, you know, in, in there doing the hard work. Yeah, Tom, and but we did we felt nothing I can tell you the Operation Warp Speed team felt nothing but tremendous support from President Trump. And by the way, there were both Democrats and Republicans on the team. And I think they both came to the same conclusion, and that was this was a leader who was highly engaged, who did not micromanage us, who gave us all of the resources we needed to be successful, 
and who provided what I call air cover, you know, within the federal government. I mean, he had a kickoff in the Rose Garden. He had a he hosted a big uh, vaccine distribution summit in early December before the vaccines came out. And this all gave us, you know, tremendous uh, energy uh, to continue to work hard. I, I can tell you what did demoralize the team. Uh, because I spoke to them after, you know, after I got kicked out on January 20th of 2021. And that is the Biden task force members came in and said, we left them a mess. They had to start from scratch. We didn't have a plan. You know, I spoke to my former colleagues, the career officials who were still on the Operation Warp Speed team. That They found that very demoralizing uh, to them. But as it related to Operation Warp Speed, I can tell you, um, President Trump was uh, highly motivating to the team. And, you know, um, he used to call Secretary Azar almost every day asking, hey, anything new? How can I help? That type of thing. So, you know, again, this was in the middle of a super hypercharged political environment. It was a, yeah. it was a presidential campaign year, you know, so... Some of his other public comments, I think I would I would put in that category. But what he did for the Operation Warp Speed team was phenomenal. Yeah, and and I I, I do want to point out that I I think it's fairly common for a new administration to come in and say that the old administration left them a mess, especially when they're changing parties. But and and I don't want to get too far off into the politics of the 2020 election, but back to this idea of giving each president a uh, um, pass or fail grade on a variety of points that might show up on a COVID response report card at the end of um, Trump's year doing it and Biden's year doing it. What kinds of things might you put on a report card of that nature and how would you rank each for those things? Yeah. Well, there's a couple. And one, I think, uh, Tom, it's a matter of expectations versus reality. And if you recall, the Biden folks came in and said, we're going to shut down this virus. The facts are that one year into it, which was the approximate time that the Trump administration managed the virus, that the Biden folks have wound up with 60 percent more cases and 10 percent more fatalities, as well as more hospitalizations in the year they've been managing it. Right. And it's not like, oh, that happened right during the transition and then they got things under control. Things are, you know, if you look at the seven-day average fatality rate, it's a couple thousand folks. So empirically, um, the Biden folks have actually done worse than the uh, Trump folks. But there are some qualitative uh, factors as well. Um, And we just talked about some of them. The availability of diagnostics. you know, in the spring of 2021, uh, you know, the American Rescue Plan Act gave the Biden administration $1.9 trillion uh, and $68 billion of that was supposed to go toward testing. And then we wind up in December of 2021 and we can't even supply Americans with their basic demand for $5 antigen tests. I mean, these antigen tests are $5, right? So, you know, where is the anticipation and the dexterity, you know, what I call the dexterity to adapt to how the virus is changing? I, we just haven't seen it. I, I, I talk in the op-ed about we changed our strategy four times in seven months. We tried to contain the virus in China. 
Then we tried to use mitigation members or uh, measures to prevent its spread. Then we tried to absorb the surges in the hospitals, you know, what we're dealing with today, send out ventilators, PPE, extra manpower. And then we basically wound up with a strategy that said, let's balance the COVID risks with other public health risks. And Tom, we haven't talked about this, but if you think about the other public health risks, uh, when you think about drug overdoses, teen suicides, a year and a half lost education uh, for a generation of children that may never make that up, deferred care where folks, healthy folks, are putting off care and they wind up with being diagnosed with stage three cancer instead of stage one cancer because they haven't been screened in years. There needs to be a balance between and among the public health risks associated with COVID on the one hand and the response to COVID on the other. And I believe the Biden folks have been excessive in their response and have not fully considered the um, other public health risks of responding too vigorously. Uh, so I, I know I'm a little bit biased. I, I was a member of the Trump administration. I'm trying to be objective, but the facts are pretty stubborn on this. And um, it's a little bit disappointing what's happened in the last year. But, you know, at first glance, as, as I watched um, President Trump's early response to the pandemic, it was it almost seemed like one of denial. If If President Biden was you know, promising too much in terms of, of how quickly he might be able to get this under control and bring an end to it. Um, it, it almost seemed like President Trump didn't do enough to tell people that there was this risk. Yeah, well, Tom, I think, you know, if you look at late March 2020, what the president did was unprecedented and dramatic which was he shut down the U.S. economy for six weeks. <laughs> so um, I think that had a profound influence on him. I think he recognized after that that you cannot, and I think he said this publicly, you cannot let the cure be worse than the disease. And I think he was convinced by his advisors uh, in March that shutting down the economy would solve this problem. And he realized after six weeks it created more problems than it solved. And therefore, he was very hesitant to impose restrictions thereafter. So I think it was born out of experience that he became more balanced in his point of view about the virus versus, uh, again, the harm that could be imposed on the American people by the response. But out of the gate, no one has, no president, I don't think in history, has done anything like Donald Trump did in terms of reacting and sh literally shutting down the U.S. economy for six weeks. I don't know if you remember that. But, again, um, I think learn from that experience and said, this isn't the answer. We need to let this evolve a little bit differently. So maybe that's why people had the impression afterwards that he wasn't as, you know, um, uh, w w wasn't as dramatic in his response to it. But I think I can tell you he, uh, he understood what the value of vaccines and therapeutics was going to be to this, and he was pushing us very hard all the way to the end, all the way to January 20th, 2021. Well, I remember, Paul, when, when those shutdowns first started happening in March of 2020, and it was, um, I, I did a little reading about um, the Spanish flu in 1918, and there were two things that really struck me about my reading of 
some of the accounts of that. Um, one was the similarity in the response with regard to mask usage, the shutdown of public venues, you know, some of those, you know, things, uh, meeting places were shut down, schools were closed, you know, and it, it seemed like we were doing a lot of the same things. The other thing that struck me, um, and, and this has got sort of two parts to it, was that it seemed to drag out for about three years. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that was... Um, because of people blowing past quarantines or shutdowns and and, uh, social distancing in celebration of the end of World War I. There there were these big parades and, you know, all of a sudden in the middle of this, uh, you know, um, pandemic that that people were supposed to be social distancing and then all of a sudden there were you know these just big celebrations and parades in the streets and so those things kind of stuck with me and and i got the impression that whether it was the trump administration or the biden administration or the people in the trenches uh, people like you, people like uh, Dr. Fauci and, and the people that we see at, in the various state health departments um, that were um, saying that, you know, this was going to be short-lived. Yeah. That, you know, I, I, I had a feeling that the evidence didn't really point to that. No, no, clearly. And I don't want to fault the experts early on because um, this was true ambiguity in early 2020 and into oh, the spring. Of I mean, we, we didn't know what we were dealing with, but there are a couple of characteristics, as I've read also about the Spanish flu in this time, that are very different. Um, and it's made this virus particularly difficult to control. One is the asymptomatic transmission. Okay, so you could be and appear and feel perfectly healthy, yet you could be transmitting this virus. My understanding was it wasn't the same with the Spanish flu, is that, you know, you had, you really did have symptoms. A lot more folks had symptoms. And the second thing is this, what I call um, asymmetric clinical impact. I know that's a fancy term, but what it means is COVID affects some folks with sniffles and others it could kill them in five or six days. So this is a very unusual virus, and Dr. Fauci used to talk about this. The Spanish flu, my understanding is, largely affected those who were 40 and under, whereas COVID largely affects those who are 50 or 60 and older. And when I say affects them, I mean serious illness, hospitalization, and death. Uh, so, um, and, and it, it had to do with the characteristics of the population and the virus at the time in 1918. So your point about going out and celebrating and so forth, those were younger folks and they were spreading this virus. Uh, whereas I think what we know about COVID today is that if we really protect those who are most vulnerable, and we know who they are, elderly and those with pretty serious underlying health conditions, that the rest of the population is going to be only minimally affected by this, which is very different than the Spanish flu, which is, you know, was the younger, healthier population who had never been exposed to this path to a pathogen such as the Spanish flu before. 
was affected. So I think there are differences. Unfortunately, we do wind up in a similar place in that we're two years into it, and this thing is still spreading and it's mutating and so forth. But I think um, the underlying characteristics were very different, and you know, therefore, the responses I think um, could have been very different. There seems to be, you know, at at least with the uh, transition to the Delta variant and then the Omicron variant, there have been other variants as well. But there seems to be a trend of lessening severity. Is that normal with a uh, with an illness like COVID nineteen um, as it um, after it has spread and it starts to uh, produce variants, are the variants, do the variants tend to be less severe? And is it, is that a result of, of just immunity that's building up either from vaccines or from having had and survived the illness or, or just some people having better immunity? Yeah, you know, I don't want to claim to be a scientist. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a business executive. Oh, go ahead, uh, that, Paul. That Play was, one on the radio. But the, um, I think the point is I do listen to the scientists. I've heard Dr. Francis Collins and others talk about this. And the primary objective of any virus is to survive. And if it kills all of their hosts, it, it, it dies itself. So what that tends to lead to are variants that are um, less virulent, as people have said, less lethal, uh, because if you kill your host, um, then you have no place to go. So um, I, I do believe that is the tendency. Uh, I don't want to say that we could never you know, return to a variant with COVID that is more virulent, but it seems like that is the tendency. And uh, hopefully that'll continue. We'll become endemic and you know, we'll have a flu shot every year that addresses it and we won't have to worry too much about it. Paul, we just have a couple of minutes left, and, and I, as I always do, I like to have guests let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. It, but in particular, Paul, I was hoping you might share some some resources that that you find reliable and credible for people who want to learn more about um, what's happening and what's being done about. Yes, Tom, thanks. Well, I do have tremendous respect for my former colleagues in the government. Um, these are career officials who are extraordinarily intelligent and well-meaning. They don't always get it right, but they, um, you know, no one does. And this is, as I said at the start, a very wily virus. So I think, you know, the CDC website is a very good source. I think the National Institutes of Health um, they put out a lot of research about the virus that I believe is is very sound. Um, I would um, I, I keep up to date on the Journal of the American Medical Association. They put out very contemporary information on the virus. The New England Journal of Medicine, which is a little bit more dated in terms of you know the time it takes between the, the research and the time it's published, is is usually a, a several months. But um, those are and then there's a uh, the British Journal of Medicine as well. You know, there's a lot going on in the UK. So those publications and the websites are generally um, very much up to date. I think Johns Hopkins as a, uh, you know, their School of Medicine has done a fantastic job of aggregating statistics if people want to know about statistics. 
But I will, uh, Tom, maybe take uh, 10 seconds just to plug my book because there's also oh, great information in, in my book, which is um, Warp Speed Inside the Operation um, That Beat uh, COVID, The Critics and the Odds. Um, it is uh, up on Amazon for pre-order. The uh, hey. e-version of the book comes out. Hello there, hey, Paul, stand, stand by and, and we'll wrap this I'm up properly in a couple of minutes. Cry, I always stop okay. by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacle that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, 
table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into a little bit of overtime with... Uh, former uh, Deputy Chief of Staff of uh, Health and Human Services and the author of a book about Operation Warp Speed, Paul Mango. And, Paul, thanks for sticking around. Um, sorry, we kind of ran out of time, and I didn't want to cut you off when you were promoting the book. And I have one more quick question before we wrap up. Sure. Yeah, please go ahead, Tom. Well, I was just going to I, I was gonna try to end our, our time together with a... Uh, uh, kind of kind of a final result. If you take a year under President Trump and a year under uh, Joe Biden, um, what what grade would you give them um, in their handling of uh, of the pandemic? Oh gosh, that's a that's a difficult question. Um, <laughs> I you know, and but I'll be honest. Um, I think I give them both an A for effort. Uh, I, I don't want to diminish the amount of, you know, time and thought that's gone into it by both administrations. Um, again, being in the middle of it, I have tremendous empathy. You know, having been in the middle of it, I have tremendous empathy for the folks who are trying to manage it now. I think they're well-meaning. I think they have ideological differences about the role of government. And, you know, we we took a very limited government approach with a very strong private sector approach. They were a little bit more... You know, let's have let's have the government mail out tests. We never would have done something like that. It's it's an ideological difference. Uh, and, but I think and you've I indicated, both, yeah. and, and you've indicated in in some of your writing that that you think, um, um, and I think this is fair to paraphrase that that Donald Trump didn't get enough credit for his handling, and maybe President Biden gets too much. Well, I think history will finally answer that at some point in the near future. But again, two years into it, and really one year under each administration, I have to say that, uh, you know, the Trump, the Trump performance is starting to look better and better. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, but I, I you know, I, I, I want to give both administrations an A for effort. I think that's the grade I would give, because it's been extraordinarily difficult. And I, and I know they're working extremely hard and they're extremely well-meaning they've just made dis- different decisions than than we made but just getting back to the book um you know it comes out uh, uh, the e-version of the book tom comes out on march 15th so just not so far away six seven weeks and warp speed you know as i said inside the operation that beat covid the critics and the ob- it, it really just talks about a great american achievement it's not a political book of course it took place in the intense political environment and we note that but i think 
what I want your listeners to understand is um, when America is challenged uh, and it can mobilize its people, and in this case, the, the wonderful private sector, uh, I'm talking about not only Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, but, you know, McKesson and UPS and FedEx and CBS and Walgreens and a IT company called Palantir. These, these people were working around the clock and they delivered a result, which was vaccines to the American people in quantities of millions in the fastest time in history. And these are some of the most safe and effective vaccines ever developed at 95%, right? So uh, if people want to read an uplifting story about a great American achievement, I encourage them to go to Amazon and order the book and and uh, have a really just, just read a great story about uh, America and be and be proud to be an American again, because that's uh, that's what the story is about. Well, I, Paul, thank you so much for sharing your your uh, uh, bird's eye view of what was going on during the the last administration and your observations uh, uh, that are more current than that. But basically, your your expertise and your your interests. Thanks for sharing that with me and the listeners. It's it's always fascinating to talk with you, Paul, and I hope we get a chance to do it again. You're welcome back anytime you'd be willing to join us. Happy to do it, Tom, and thanks thanks to you and your listeners for hanging in there and have a have a terrific rest of the week. All right, take care. Again, uh, that was um, Paul Mango, former deputy chief of staff for uh, Health and Human Services, and. Uh, with that, we've got more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. I was talking about doctors, and there was a, an item in the paper about they had put up $200,000 to study witchcraft because they had found that some of the things that witch doctors had been teaching for ages had some definite therapeutic value, either uh, psychosomatic or, or definite uh, medicinal cures, and to see if the modern doctor could learn anything from witchcraft. And the reverse might be also true. Uh, I wonder how far the witch doctor has progressed, how many of the modern medical theories or practices he has adapted to his needs. And uh, this is a witch doctor, and I'm sure like any other doctor, he gets a phone call in the middle of the night. And... Oh, hello. Oh, hi. Hi, Mrs. Kumba. No, no, that's, that's all right. I've, I would have been getting up another five, six hours anyway. <laughs> the, the crops are withering, and, and your son is seeing demons, huh? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of that going around. I, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. So, sounds like a 24-hour curse to me. I would... Well, I'll tell you, if you're really concerned, um, do you have any bark of a tree that was uh, struck by lightning in the light of a full moon in the medicine chest? Yeah, you might sprinkle some of that on him every four hours. And if he isn't any better in the morning, why? Gee, I, I couldn't possibly come out to the house. No, I, I, I don't make hut calls anymore, uh, Mrs. Crumber. No, I, I haven't danced around the house in, in years, you know. If you don't, you don't stay with it, uh, you know, you lose it. Mrs. Crumber, I don't, I don't care how many chickens you're going to give me. I, you know, it just isn't worth my time. The, go the government takes uh, most of them anyway, you know. So. 
Well, I can recommend a good demon man. I, I, don't, uh, you know, I don't happen to specialize in, in demon work. He's uh, pretty good. There's, uh, there's one intern, a um, guy just got out of school. He, he still makes house calls, but, you know, that, that should tell you something about the guy. You know, it, well, he's a little slow, you know. He has to paint the steps around the house be, before he does a dance, you know. And he, yeah, and then sometimes he'll, you know, instead of curing the curse, it'll, it'll rain, you know. Well, they're very similar dances, you know. If you, if you don't know what you're doing, you, you can wind up with a thunderstorm for about five or six days. You know? Well, you're free to call him. I tell you what you could do. Uh, you might wrap him in some mud and, and put some, uh, some leaves around him and, and put him out in a field where some hyenas uh, congregate. And, well, it, it won't help the curse, no, but sometimes their laugh can become infectious, you know, and it <laughs> might cheer him up a little bit, you know. Well, I tell you, if he doesn't feel better in the morning, uh, why, why don't you bring him in? Yeah? Well, that's right, tomorrow is Wednesday, isn't it? Uh, well, I'll tell you what the hell, we don't tee off till 1.30. Why don't you bring him in in the morning? All right, goodbye, goodbye. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
of this quarantine's gonna be the death of me. The death of me. You know, they say this is war. But we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Pork Chop Hill. And we just lay here on the couch and watch TV. I'd rather volunteer for a high-risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bad soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, yes, dear, yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized. <laughs> As soon as I regained consciousness. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> <laughs> 